Global bond yields have moved sharply higher in recent weeks, setting the stage for a higher for longer rate regime. So how much higher can yields move and what are the implications for investors? Markets are going to try to steal their way to what level of yields the economy can sustain or other markets can sustain. And so I would not rule out that you see an extension of the sell-off. However, I think that the sell-off would not stick, meaning to the extent you see further sell-off from here, you increase the risk of a sharper reversal in these yields. I'm Allison Nathan, and this is Goldman Sachs Exchanges. make sense of the turmoil in the bond market and the impact on economic growth and markets, I'm sitting down with Praveen Kaurapati, Chief Interest Rate Strategist for Goldman Sachs Research, and Anshul Segal, Co-Head of U.S. Interest Rate Products Trading in our global banking and markets business. We'll first turn to Praveen, who's joining us remotely from Europe. Praveen, welcome back to the program. Good to be on. So let's start with some broader context here. Bond yields, obviously, they've been on the rise since early last year when the Fed started hiking substantially to deal with the inflation problem. But we've seen a particularly sharp sell-off in U.S. Treasuries in recent weeks. So talk to us a little about what's behind that move. I'd say there's a confluence of reasons. Now, if you go back a few months, most investors were expecting a recession by the end of this year. Growth data or summer suggested that that was extremely unlikely. So the first phase of the sell-off you've seen in bond yields is simply an upward growth re-rating and declining recession odds. The second phase, which we've seen over the last two months, was really about investors internalizing the Fed's higher per longer message. Now, it seems to have broken through. We had thought that investors might take some time to come to this conclusion, but it's happened a bit faster than what we thought they might take. Finally, I think many investors believe this repricing is because of an unsustainable fiscal trajectory. Now, with the U.S. looking set to run large deficits for the foreseeable future, there could be two ways rates are pressured higher. First, fiscal expenditures are stimulative. Then you could see high growth rates support higher rates. And second, if the supply of debt combined with the lack of eager buyers could push up yields, it could be the market clearing levels should be higher. No, I should say we're skeptical on both counts on these latter two clients, and there's a variety of reasons which we can discuss. But of course, if a sufficiently large number of investors believe this, the bond vigilante narrative that you may have heard of would take four decades for a while. So how much further can the sell-off and bonds extend after this very big move we've already seen? Our own view here is that we are currently oversold. Our fair value measure here is closer to around 4.3%. And so clearly by that metric, we have overshot. Nevertheless, having said that, when rates break out of an old regime into a new regime, it's not the case that you move from the old regime to the center point of the new range. Markets are going to try to steal their way to what level of yields the economy can sustain or other markets can sustain. And so I would not rule out that you see an extension of the sell-off. However, and this is an important caveat, I think that the sell-off would not stick, meaning to the extent you see further sell-off from here, you increase the risk of a sharper reversal in these yields. Let me just clarify, when we talk about this new rate regime, are we talking about just in the U.S. or is this really more of a global phenomenon? I think it's a global phenomenon, but In the U.S., you see to a greater extent, partly because the U.S. economy, so far at least, has shown greater signs of resilience. 
meaning you could see the U.S. economy with the Fed having hiked more aggressively than many of these central banks still outperform these other economies. So the economic response is giving a signal to investors as to how much of a rate level shift each particular economy could bear. And given that the U.S. economy appears the most robust, you see a larger shift happening here. But remember, even in Europe, just last cycle, we were talking about Japanification and Burma negative rates. So there has really been a regime shift there as well. The last leg is what's in question. Clearly, growth data in Europe has been a bit weaker. So it's unclear if we get that final leg of reprices that we see in the U.S. play out in Europe. There have been spillovers, I should say, from U.S. long-end yields to global long-end yields. The question is whether it will stick as readily there as it might in the U.S. That was my next question to you, which is how are bond markets around the world responding and reacting to these moves in the U.S.? So you've seen a sell-off in sympathy with U.S. long-end yields. Now, what is the impact of this move? I think it could vary by region. So let's take Europe, for example. As I said, Europe does have a weaker growth outlook in the near term. And the rise in long-end yields is the tightening of financial conditions. You don't want necessarily tighter financial conditions if you're already starting from a weaker place. For a place like the U.S., where we've been growing above potential, it perhaps can weather this rise or tightening of financial conditions better and easier than a place like Europe, where you're already at very low growth rates. And so the sort of sell-off and the accompanying financial condition tightening may be unwelcome. And just to elaborate on that a bit, one instance where you see that show up clearly is in the case of Italy. Debt sustainability issues have come back to the fore. And really the question is whether the current levels of real rates is something that is compatible with a sustainable trajectory. Clearly markets are questioning that. And so I think this is going to play out differently in each region. And that will depend on where they are in their growth and business cycle. And so as you said, we've seen bond yields basically reacting to the resiliency in the U.S. economy and the Fed adopting this message that you're going to have to see rates higher for longer, the market internalizing that. But what's the risk that we see this higher for longer rate environment then start to actually weigh on economic growth? We've talked a lot about consumer resiliency. Will we see economic spillovers from these higher rates? It's entirely possible. That remains to be seen. So far, the U.S. consumer and economy, as you said, have been remarkably resilient to interest rate increases. Now, if you go by historical experience, this rise in interest rates should both directly and indirectly contribute to tightening financial conditions, indirectly because it might push equities lower, strengthen the dollar, and so on. Our economists have a rule of thumb that says that if you have a 1% point tightening in financial conditions, that roughly tightens growth by 1% point over the next year or so. And it's hard to measure how much tightening you've had because it depends on the starting point. But let's say we had about a 50 basis point or so tightening in financial conditions, that should be about a half percentage point on driving U.S. growth over the next year. And so is this all good news for the Fed? The market's finally getting the message that rates need to stay higher to rein in inflation and solve this problem for them. And then what does it really mean for their next move? So some of this is not unwelcome news. So clearly... Investors for a long time believing or rather disbelieving the Fed in its higher for longer message 
meant that the long end didn't quite participate with the Fed tightening campaign. And so might have been upon the Fed to actually do a bit more at the front end. Now that the long end has caught up, it is helpful in the sense that they may have to do less, but they can be too much of a good thing. To the extent you see the sell-offs continue, you may actually tighten financial conditions too much. And certainly that is probably not something the Fed wants either. The problem, of course, is unlike the front end, which the Fed controls directly, the Fed doesn't really control the long end. That is still a market price. And so it doesn't quite have the same degree of control in how financial conditions are affected by these moves in long end rate. So while it can hope that the move is going to stall out, if this were to continue another 50 or 100 basis point, I think that could end up being problematic rather than a good thing. And so just to quantify all this, you said you think that the recent moves have been a bit oversold, but what is your forecast for 10-year Treasury yields in the U.S. end of this year, end of 2024? So end of this year, our forecast is 4.25% for 10-year Treasury yields. We actually see the same level end of next year, but the path is not one of just being stagnant. We think there's some variation, some ups and downs along this path. But it so happens that our forecast for both those years are 4.25%. Both, I should say, lower than current levels. So what will it take for the market to correct as you expect? There are two things we've been looking out for. One is a patch of soft data that would bring many investors back into worrying about a recession, which they just until recently were worried about. And two, you could see other markets like equity markets under the weight of higher rates, and that would also lead to a correction in yields. Now, in terms of demand, I've been asked why there is this air pocket in demand that is pushing yields higher. And the general phrase I hear often is that I'd rather chase a rally than catch a falling knife. What that means to me is that you could see wild swings on the way up, but you could equally see a sharp reversal once you get either that soft economic data or you see equity markets cry. And then all of this talk about higher for longer regime, where do we ultimately expect long run yields to settle? If we don't have this recession, which isn't in our model forecast from our economists, you could see 10-year yields settle around our year-end forecast, so 4.25%. That's our fair value estimate as well. So that's roughly where I would expect yields to settle over a longer period of time. There are probably some risks in the other direction as well. I mentioned if there was a recession, we could head lower because then investors would question whether we are in fact in an higher for longer regime. So you could see that reset lower. The other side of the story is if the economy is indeed resilient, you could actually see maybe inflation being a little sticky earlier than we think. And perhaps that would lead to an upward repricing in yields. And the second, which is somewhat more speculative, is the potential for generative AI to boost potential growth, at least temporarily, for a period of five to seven years. That could support higher rain rates in the economy. So there are these risk factors out there that give you this distribution. But if I had to pick a model value, I would say our current year and forecast 4.25% is a pretty good one. Thanks so much for joining us, Praveen. My pleasure. We'll now turn to Anshul Segal from our global banking and markets business for his perspective on the market impact. Anshul, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I was just discussing with Praveen that 
broadly speaking, in recent weeks, the market has really seemed to buy into this higher for longer rate regime. And we've seen this big sell-off in bonds. Talk us through what you're seeing in terms of that sell-off and implications across other markets. In terms of the broad sell-off that we witnessed, it's accelerated in the last couple of months. But realistically speaking, the sell-off started when the Fed started hiking. The difference is when the Fed's hiking the front end of the curve, the front end sold at 500 basis points, but the back end was still very, very low in terms of yield. What's happened since then is as the Fed's continued on with QT and the economy hasn't really rolled over, lots of people expected that the economy would roll over even when the Fed got to 300 basis points, let alone 537 basis points, which is where we are right now on the funds rate. As that didn't happen, people started to ask questions like, why exactly wasn't the economy rolling over? We always assumed that this was a super levered economy. And a big reason for that is that the government is 25% of the economy today. The net position of the US government every year, fiscally, it expands by 6 to 7%. Primary deficits are over 4%. And this is a global phenomenon. It's not just the US. European domains are running primary deficits of 3 to 4% now. They used to run primary deficits of 1.5 to 2%. They've had a holiday in terms of the primary deficit. So as the market's basically gotten more comfortable with the idea that higher yields can be sustained for longer, the long end of the curve sold off and it's had very little sponsorship from institutional money. And to understand that, I think it makes sense to look at the last decade, the time from the GFC to the pandemic. In that time frame, the US government expanded fiscally up by a lot. The rest of the world did not. So as the U.S. government was fiscally expanding, the buyers of that duration were central banks, the Fed, in the case of the U.S., banks, brick and mortar banks were buying because cost of funds was zero and they could buy five-year treasuries with a 2% yield. Banks can lever up, give or take, seven to one. So they're making 14% pre-tax returns. That hits their hurdle rate. They were buyers of duration for that reason. And so just to clarify, by duration, you mean? Long-dated treasuries. They justified it with deposit beta modeling and any number of other things, hedging their liability exposure. But by and large, it was a massively positive carry trade that worked well in risk-off environments. It was a win-win. And it was insurance companies, which is also a very big thing to actually pull apart. So in 2012, the boomers were in their early 50s. They'd just gone through a big credit shock. They were preparing for retirement. There was the whole savings glut argument. They wanted to buy duration. They wanted to save for retirement. And that led to less consumption, anemic growth, but also a very big bid to the long end of the U.S. rates curve. The boomers right now are in their early 60s. They are entering retirement. Some of them have entered. A lot of them will be entering over the next couple of years. When they enter retirement, their bid for the long bond isn't there anymore. Where we sit today, the funds rate is higher than the yield on the five-year note. As a consequence, banks aren't incentivized to lever up and buy five-year notes. They lose money on it. Right. So just to stop you there, Anshul, for a moment. So we're really just talking about the supply and demand for long end bonds. Right. So you end up in a place where you had many different constituents that wanted to buy sovereign bonds to a place where none of these constituents want to buy sovereign bonds at all. And concurrently, the government's fiscal stance has expanded meaningfully on the side of the pandemic. So you've now got a fairly meaningful supply demand imbalance. Now, again, there were other constituents that over the last 50 years, if you go back pre-GFC, the government was still able to place its debt. But that's because if you look at any other prior massive fiscal expansion that we witnessed, whether it was Reagan outspending the Russians, whether it was the Great Society, whether it was the Vietnam War, in each of those cases, 
someone was running a surplus outside of America and as a store of value, they were buyers of sovereign bonds. In this world, the government's fiscal expansion isn't going towards any of those things. It's actually entitlement spending, a whole host of things that are going to the household. So the eventual buyer of these bonds necessarily will be the household because the wealth transfer that's occurring from the public side to the private side is basically from the government to the household, not from the government to a surplus domain that is exporting goods to America. So the question then becomes, when will the household be incentivized to basically save more as opposed to spend and buy bonds? The problem there is that the boomers that have been the dominant buyer of sovereign duration, even pre-GFC, are actually in retirement at this point in time. The dependency ratio is going the wrong way. The worker is incentivized to basically continue to consume in this current world. At some point, at some level of yield, that will turn. And we don't know what that level of yield is. And that's what the market's trying to figure out. But even though you've gone through this history, which makes a lot of sense, and you've talked that this bond sell-off really began early last year when the Fed started tightening to rein in inflation, ultimately, we have seen it accelerate. I think for a long time, the market didn't believe that long and yields were going to remain higher. So what has changed, in your view, the market psychology at this point? It was a little bit of a rude awakening for the market because everyone woke up and assumed that some of these constituents will continue to exhibit the same behavior that they had over the last 15 years. The reason the reaction was delayed in my mind is because in the first six months of the year, you had the debt ceiling issue. So what was happening was as the Fed was doing QT and buying fewer bonds, the government was spending down its own account because it couldn't issue more debt. Then the debt ceiling got resolved and the government basically issued a lot of debt over a short period of time. Much of it was front-loaded, but still it issued a lot of debt. And then starting somewhere like end July, early August, you had the double effect of QT where the Fed's not buying and the government issuing more. And that's when everyone realized that basically no constituent was a material buyer of long-dated duration. And that's why the sell-off accelerated then it fed on itself, and you end up in a place where we are today. As we're sitting here this morning on Tuesday morning, we are seeing yields falling pretty substantially. I think the largest move we've seen in that direction for, let's say, roughly six months. What's driving that? The big news, of course, over the weekend has been these horrific events in Israel. Is the market digesting that, or how would you explain a bit of the backup this morning? So there was definitely a flight to quality bid to the market when the market opened Sunday night on the back of everything that's going on in the Middle East. In addition, yesterday, Laurie Logan from the Dallas Fed and Jefferson, vice chair of the FOMC, both spoke. The Fed is concerned about the velocity with which the long end sold off. And they basically, again, in Fed speak, it's, it's difficult to read, but most market participants thought that they're not going to be hiking at least in the November meeting. And to a certain extent, we might have seen the last hike or there's an increased likelihood that we've seen the last hike and the market priced that in, in addition to the flight to quality bid to Treasury. So the combination of those things led to a 10, 12 basis point rally. And it's a little bit of a consolidation move right now for the market because the market sold off something like 75 basis points in a straight line. You had a bumper payroll print. Market got spooked right after the payroll print. And then the Fed basically came out and calmed markets a little bit. And that's why we're seeing the rally today. Right. But yields are still quite elevated relative to where they were. Absolutely. What is the implication? What are you seeing in terms of other assets, how they're responding to this big move in bonds? That's a great question. So risk assets have taken it on the chin. It's been rough for risk assets. 
it's difficult for me to disentangle how much of it is because of the velocity of the move and how much of it is because the discount rate's now higher. So future cash flows need to be discounted at a higher rate. And that makes owning risk a little more challenging. For me, I think there are different cross currents when it comes to broader risk profiles. So for example, credit. In an inflationary world, credit should trade just fine, mainly because the debt burden decreases in real terms year after year. So credit has not been challenged this entire cycle, which makes a lot of sense to me. In terms of equities, I think to a certain extent, equities had ramped up a whole lot on the government spending, the fiscal, the combination of all of those things. There was a lot of euphoria and there is no easy way to put a price on growth stock. So for all of those reasons, equities continue to look like really good value to me in a world where there is the chance that inflation reemerges in a meaningful way. Equities are much more immune to inflation than bonds are. And the excess government spending is going to the household. The boomers, as they retire, will be spenders and they will be consuming. So as a consequence, equities by and large ought to be supported. So for me, the recent drawdown in equities was mainly driven by the velocity of the move. If we could say for certain that the Fed's done with the hiking cycle, I think equities would actually recover a lot more from where they are right now. Where do you think the market psychology is at this point in terms of the Fed and what the expectations are? So it's complicated because after the speeches by Laurie Logan and Jefferson yesterday, the market took down the probability of a hike in the NOV meeting to about 20% from about 35%, which is just risk premium in the funds market. And then it gets complicated from there on out because you might get a government shutdown after that, in which case you're not getting a hike in December. Let's say that happens. Is the Fed really going to hike going into an election cycle when inflation is materially lower, even if it reemerges? As of now, it's materially lower than where the funds rate is. So it becomes challenging for the Fed to hike again. So my personal view right now is that at least in the near term, the Fed is certainly done with the hiking cycle, the sell-off in the long bond, the tightening in financial conditions that's led to the combination of those things. I think the economy looks fairly tight. Also, Q4 growth is expected to be soggy. So one would really need to stretch one's imagination to think that the Fed will want to continue hiking into slower growth when real rates are as high as they are. So my guess would be like between now and February, we're not seeing a hike. And then it's enormously difficult. Things would have to turn quite meaningfully for the Fed to hike between February and November. So most likely, I would say, yeah, where the hiking cycle is done. Praveen ultimately expects that yields are going to move lower, not in a straight line, but, you know, his forecasts are more in the four and the quarter range, end of this year, end of next year. Do you agree with that? Or, you know, do you think that the market generally is oversold at this point? Or where do you think yields might end up? It's a great question. For me, I can certainly see paths that lead to yields being materially lower than where they are. But then if the household's the buyer of sovereign debt going forward globally, is the household that excited about buying seven-year paper at, at 4% yield and taking the mark-to-market risk on that? To me, the GFC to the pandemic timeframe was the anomaly where inflation was, for long stretches in that period, inflation was higher than where bond yields were. Where we are now is much more normal. There's risk premium in the market. So can yields go back to four and a quarter percent? Absolutely. Do I see yields going back to four, four and a quarter percent without the Fed reducing the funds rate so that a lot of the participants that we discussed, whether it's banks or insurance companies or sovereign wealth funds, so that makes it easier for them to buy bonds with an upward sloping yield curve. Yeah. So like, I don't see yields going to four, four and a quarter percent without the funds rate 
coming down a lot more. For me, if placement of sovereign debt is a consideration, then the Fed should cut just for that reason. It's perfectly legitimate if inflation's at, say, 3 3.5%, they can easily justify 4% funds rate. It's stimulative for the economy, which is a good thing. By and large, the housing market, which has just come to a standstill, reemerges. And then, yeah, I can see the long bond rallying 100 basis points from where it is, absolutely. But absent the Fed cutting rates or ending QE, it's really hard for me to see the long end rallying. Of course, bad things happen in the world, like what we witnessed over the weekend. Treasuries will have a flight to quality bid. But structural buys do not emerge until the funds rate is lower. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining us, Anshul. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Goldman Sachs Exchanges, recorded on Monday, October 9th and Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The opinions and views expressed in this program are not necessarily the opinions of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied or published without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each brand mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this program.